Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I went off to India for three months while still having the corner office on corner 15th and K Street. And at one point, my girlfriend, who was also a kind of corporate person, she and I said, well, maybe there's something more. And how much is enough? How much is enough? How much do you have to have to consider yourself happy? And maybe we should just call it enough and leave. As we were walking out, a guy caught up to me. And he was actually a, a Western, uh, a guy who teaches at Boston College, who's also a Tibetan Lama. And he, and he said to me, hey, you know, with his finger pointing at me, hey, you don't get it. And I said, I don't get what. <laughs> and he said, you don't understand what's happening. If you have some kind of skill, you're supposed to use that skill to help other people. That was my guest today, James C. Hopkins. In 2004, he retired from his job as a stockbroker and checked into a Buddhist monastery in Kathmandu and has been living in Nepal ever since. And I'm always fascinated by these total directional shifts that life can take especially when they can be traced back to a single moment. And you just heard there was a moment there when somebody was pointing in James' chest saying, you need to use your skills to help other people. Well, you're going to learn how that moment turned into a 10-year stint working at a monastery and traveling the world with monks, how another small moment with another person pointing a finger into his chest and calling him out led to him creating a social enterprise to help fund education for kids, how James' relationship with money and possessions has changed over time, the power of saying yes to helping others, advice for navigating new beginnings, the difference between detachment and non-attachment, and how understanding that can help you, how to make the most out of your money when traveling, and loads more. Plus, I want to give a shout out to a listener who rose to a recent challenge I put out there and left a voicemail about it. You'll hear that story. And I'm, I'm really excited for her because I'm sure she's feeling very relaxed right now. <laughs> You'll understand why. All of that happening in this show and plenty more. And it's happening right now. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here. And welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now, your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason with zerototravel.com. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. So excited to bring you this interview today. I'm always fascinated by serendipity. You know, is it serendipity or is it just these moments where we happen to be paying special attention to something or someone? Maybe it's something we recently read or saw or experienced. It's really hard to say, but there are some moments, as you heard at the top, that James shares as a part of his journey where it was a small interaction with somebody, but it led to, you know, a giant change or a whole new life path for him. And it always makes me reflect and think about what were those moments in my life? I'm wondering what some of yours were as well. And I'm going to share one on the back end of this interview where somebody told me to shut up and do something and it worked and it led to one of the best things I've ever done. So you hear that story on the back end. Now, before we dive into the interview, I do want to give a quick shout out to somebody in this community who is down in Peru and rose to a recent challenge I put out there here on the podcast. Now, here's the message I got from fellow listener Jasmine down in South America. Hey, Jason. My name is Jasmine, and I'm sending you this voice note from Cusco, Peru, where I currently am leading a program for recent high school graduates that are taking time between high school and college in order to explore what opportunities are out there for travel and for life in general. Um, so we're here in Peru. We've been here about four weeks, and we were in Chile and Patagonia for five weeks prior to that. So we're coming to a close on a 10-week program, and as usual, I'm just feeling pretty grateful for the opportunity to travel and work at the same time. <laughs> Your podcast definitely inspires me to continue on this track. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for the wonderful episodes you put out there. They're entertaining, inspirational, fun to listen to, um, and offer lots of good practical advice while I'm out here on the road. Um, I just wanted to also mention that I was totally inspired by your challenge that you put out there um, during your episode on beauty with Yari Coelho, and I will be getting a massage this afternoon near the Plaza de Armas in Cusco in order to treat myself and to kind of embrace the idea of backpacker beauty. So thanks again so much and take care. Thanks, Jasmine. I really appreciate you reaching out. Hope you enjoyed your massage. That sounds good. Yes, that was a challenge I put on a recent podcast to go treat yourself a little bit. And Jasmine did just that. I love Cusco. A very romantic city, I feel. Uh, by the way, if you want to get in touch, just a quick reminder before we slip and slide into the interview segment, you should. Jason at ZeroToTravel.com is my email. And of course, if you want to leave a voicemail like Jasmine did, I leave a link for you to do that. In all of the show notes, you can just click on that. You don't need to enter an email or anything. Just hit record. Leave me a message. Let me know what's up. Let me know your story. Just say hi. It always makes my day to hear from listeners make this a two-way conversation. So get in touch anytime. This is a community-powered show. Love that you're here listening. And I'm here to serve you, my friend. Now, let me tell you a little bit about James, our guest today. Incredible guy. He is many wonderful things, including a poet. You'll hear some of his poetry today. He's also the founder of QuiltsForKidsProject.com, a social enterprise which creates jobs for economically challenged women and sponsors the education of at-risk kids, mostly girls in their community. He also runs writing workshops, which you can learn more about at Himalayan Writers Workshop. 
Com. I would love to go to one of these workshops. Stick around on the back end. I am going to share that moment for me that changed a big part of my life where somebody said, just shut up and do something. And I did. And it changed my life. So I'll share that story plus leave you with a quote. For now, enjoy my conversation with James. Hear how he went from Wall Street to a Buddhist monastery in Nepal and the many twists and turns his life has taken and a lot of lessons to pull out here. Enjoy the conversation. See you on the other side, my friends. Yeah, I'm so excited to welcome James Hopkins to the Zero to Travel podcast. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so much. Great to be here. I think the place to start for you is I wanted to hear about your father's book collection. Oh, okay. Well, that is not a question that I expected as an opener, but that's a great opening question. Um, My father's book collection. Well, my father was uh, an English professor at an all-male boarding school in Virginia. Um, a, A kind of classic eccentric professor, you know, with the tweed jackets and the leather patch elbows. And he had this um, study that he was often inside of. And on the door, it had a a sign that said, uh, bless this mess on it. And it was always closed. And it was very intimidating. And as a kid, I would have to go or would be sent down to my dad's study. And I'd have to knock on the door. And then the door would open. And it was a room that was... uh, two walls of books, uh, kind of floor to ceiling, as I recall, and a big desk that was covered with books. Uh, There were books everywhere. And um, it was a kind of, uh, you know, dead poet society kind of looking room. Um, And there was a typewriter. My dad was always on the typewriter. Um, And so the physical presence of books was something that... um, really was uh, strong in my mind as a kid, uh, a a room full of books, you know, and and when he was there or wasn't there, I was always kind of going through the titles and checking out, you know, um, especially the ones, the weird ones like the naked ape and things like that. I thought, what is, you know, something's naked, it's got to be interesting, you know, but spend a lot of time just in the physical presence of books and, um, I think that was instrumental in kind of, you know, um, launching me into a, a, a kind of amateur uh, poet's a, a career as an amateur poet, at least. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk about poetry today and a whole lot of other things, but there's something magical about a wall of books, isn't there? What a nice thing to have so so nearby, you know? There is something about that physical presence. And um, wherever I've been, uh, the bookcases almost always been the, uh, the, you know, kind of a main feature of the house. And um, uh, I, I do have a Kindle. I think the battery's dead on it now because I never use it. I just uh, love, love the, to see those spines of all those books. Yeah. And I see some books in the background where you are in, are you in Kathmandu right now? Is this your... Uh, I am in Kathmandu right now. Okay. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to talk about how you got there and, and everything like that. But I'm I'm curious, you know, in the in the books that you have around you now, what are some of the ones that you find yourself gravitating towards and picking up time and again? 
That's a great question, uh, especially as a guy who just recently reorganized all of his books, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, but the, the books that I go back to and, and, and gravitate to, as you said, are usually books of poetry. I know it's easy to pick up a book of poetry and um, kind of uh, go to your favorite poem or to a new poem. Uh, it doesn't take very long to do that. And so I'm, I'm always... I enjoy getting new books of poetry and, and I enjoy going to them for inspiration. Um, I've got a whole uh, shelf full of books in the guest room that is, uh, I keep it in the guest room because it's a little bit embarrassing, but it's all kind of uh, crime fiction hardbacks that I've purchased in bookstores or in airports for travel. You know, it's, it's a 26 hour flight, uh, give or take three or four hours from America to Kathmandu. And I always buy uh, something in, in the bookstore before I take off. And it's usually some kind of really, uh, I like to I like to think uh, kind of highbrow crime fiction, but it's always crime fiction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You go, go with the dark stuff when you're traveling, huh? <laughs> right. So, so my bookshelf is full of that because that's, you know, the I, I land in Kathmandu with a with a uh, recently read book of crime fiction, and it goes on the bookshelf. But it's it's not the only thing I read. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard of Yu Nesbo? He's a famous Norwegian oh, author. I, I just finished The Red Breast a couple of days ago. Okay, I bought it in Bangkok and loved it. Couldn't put it down. <laughs> Five hundred and thirty some pages of already. It reads just like a movie. Hugely popular author here, and I guess globally now. I should have it on my bucket list to read one of his books in Norwegian because, you know, when you read the book in the original language, that's that's the real sort of representation of that, right? Of course, the translations work, but there's something nice about being able to read it in the, in the language it was written in. So I have to, to do that. Sometime. Well, I, you know, <laughs> please don't ask me for author's names, but I've been a huge fan of um, you know, Scandinavian noir, Nordic noir, uh, you know, way before everybody else was into it, of course. Um, but I really was a kid who loved um, detective stories and mystery books. And uh, in the, in the, I guess, primary school that goes up to fifth grade, we had a library with a card catalog, you know, and I would go to the mystery section of the card catalog. And I, 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 I read every single mystery story in the card catalog in the library of that school, I was infatuated with um, snow and the, and the idea of murders occurring in snow. And I would often go to bookstores in the small, medium-sized town where I was from and say, do you have a, a book that uh, is a murder mystery that takes place in snow? Automatically, I ended up in your part of the world. <laughs> um, you know, right. Re re reading anything, you know, anything that where there was snow and darkness and death. So Norway. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We know a little bit about yeah. snow and darkness and death here. That's uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And the, yeah. and the pandemic, of course, was a, was a great time to catch up on all those um, TV shows, you know, uh, that you guys have been putting out for so long from <laughs> Norway and Sweden and, you know, the, uh, the killing and the bridge and all that stuff that's become so popular. 
Well, listen, man, you got to come. You got to come over for a visit. We'll tour some of the sites, you know. Oh, it, it will be a, a pilgrimage. Yes, yeah. absolute pilgrimage. Where did you grow up? You mentioned small, medium-sized town. What, what town was that? Um, I grew up in, in the United States, in um, the state of Virginia. And if you put your finger right in the middle of the map of Virginia, you'll probably land on uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. And it's, um, you know, it, it was a uh, tobacco town. John Lynch, who was the founder of the town, I think was a, a tobacco growing guy. Uh, my my mother's people all were kind of tobacco growers. And it, it's when I was growing up in Lynchburg, it was about 80,000 people. And I think now it's probably, you know, 85,000, <laughs> something like that. Um, maybe a little more than that. I'm, I'm joking. But it's not on any major interstate, but it is it's kind of a medium-sized town in in rural Virginia, um, at the, near the end of the Shenandoah Valley, Blue Ridge mountains, that, that kind of place. Beautiful mountains there. Beautiful. Uh, I mean, you're, you're a far away from Virginia where you grew up. What what a journey. I mean, all right. I want to get into this because you, you've, uh, I I don't know anything about how your journey to Kathmandu and, and transpired. I know you spent 20 years working in I think stock investing and, and things like that, uh, or twenty plus years. Yeah, can, can you talk about um, your career? And, and then I'm just curious. I'm curious about how you you ended up doing what you were doing, and then how you ended up not doing it anymore. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, absolutely. Um, let's see. Uh, I kind of grew up in this in the '70s and went as was heading to college in the '80s. So. To give a, a little bit of a cultural time frame, um, you know, and, and I grew up as a faculty child, a campus, a kid on a on a campus of a, uh, as I said, an, an all boys um, boarding school in Virginia. Uh, I wasn't one of the boarding students. I was a faculty kid, and I kind of also went to public school in town, but I wasn't really from town because I lived at that weird boarding school in the forest. So I always was a little bit of an outsider. I'm, I'm sort of just saying that as, a, as something that may be uh, a kind of theme to, um, to the journey. Uh, but I was a good kid, studied hard, went to a good college. And when you come out of you know, uh, Duke University in 1983, you want to uh, work on Wall Street and make a lot of money because that's what everyone was doing at that time. And you know, it was Ronald Reagan and uh, greed is good and all of that, that way of looking at the world. And uh, that wasn't really who I was, I don't think. Um, I, I grew up with very, very wealthy, amongst very, very wealthy kids at this boarding school. Um, and I, you know, uh, was a... Um, uh, you know, president of the investment club, and I taken economics classes and all that sort of thing. But I was actually a French language and literature major. Uh, I I studied French. Uh, I went to school in Paris. Loved French literature. Total humanities guy. And um, but I I had this kind of uh, you can say hobby or interest in investing and. You know, I don't think you, you could ever do this now, but I kind of talked my way into a job on Wall Street. Um, 
I had a, a, a friend who had a, a girlfriend who was a receptionist at a, at, a, at a big brokerage firm in New York City. And um, I literally uh, bought, a, bought a suit, blue pinstripe suit, which I still have, you know, always a classic, never goes out of style. Um, got on a bus and went to New York City and uh, sat outside the manager's office with a little piece of paper that I put into my wallet describing that where I had written down the uh, qualities that I thought might be important in a, in a Wall Street investment broker, assertive, confident, that kind of thing. And I was rehearsing and I went in and uh, I was assertive and confident and that's decision making, that sort of thing. And I kind of literally talked my way into uh, uh, a desk with a phone and a phone book in Manhattan, 1984, and um, uh, did okay, and uh, and continued to work on um, uh, worked for one company. Uh, it was Payne Weber, which was a well-known independent brokerage firm at the time. Later purchased by UBS, uh, you know, a Swiss bank looking for an investment arm in America. So I technically worked for the same company for 23 years since getting off the bus uh, in New York in 84, I guess, all the way to when I retired at the age of 45. I did. Re- I retired at, a, at a, maybe an early age. Yeah. Was that always the plan? Or I'm, I'm curious how you were, what these two worlds were like for you over the course of your career, because you kind of mentioned having this almost like moonlighting in the humanities in some ways, right? Like, you know, having this interest in poetry and all this stuff, but in your professional environment, your day-to-day environment, I mean, Wall Street in the 80s and 90s, that's that's a pretty hectic environment, right? I mean, it could be, I imagine, high stress and there's a, it's a totally different kind of vibe in some ways, not that there aren't people on Wall Street who are interested in humanities and things like that, but you know what I'm saying? It's, right, it's a- right. You know, I kind of put my head down and did what needed to be done and, uh, you know, uh, pretended like I was all those things that I wanted to be, confident, assertive, and decision maker, and, and a kind of money-hungry young guy in Manhattan. And I cold-called people and got clients, and I was actually fairly successful at doing that. And, um uh, I continued to work for that firm for a long time, uh, but there, it's a very, um, uh, it's kind of a cookie cutter world. You, you can't step too far outside of what is expected, you know, not shiny shoes and expensive suit and a fairly conservative outlook and, and that sort of thing. And so I, I was that for a long time. Uh, but then the more successful I became uh, as an investment broker, um, the more the, the the kind of real James started to show up, and so somewhere uh, in the in the late nineties, by the, by that time I had been you know working for for a while. Um, I grew my hair long, I had a ponytail. If you if you walked into my office, uh, I, I moved to Washington D.C. at some point. If you walked into my uh, corner office. On the on 15th and K Streets in Washington D.C., there would be a um, big picture of the Dalai Lama, some uh, Indian carpets, some Tibetan paintings of the of the various multi-armed deities on my wall, and um, it was one of the one of the one of the um, must must stop in offices 
on my manager's never-ending quest to, to recruit new brokers from other firms. And he would walk around the office and he'd always stop by and he'd say, see, we hire all kinds of people here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so gradually that, that uh, my kind of, let's say, a real personality emerged over, over the course of, of many years. Over, after about 15, 16 years, uh, you know, the original James kind of uh, emerged. Uh, the pinstripe suit disappeared a little bit. And um, one of my proudest moments in my uh, you know, 23 years uh, as an investment broker was when I um, was able to con more than 40 investment brokers to come to one of my poetry readings. Uh, it was, I offered free beer and wine. Uh, it was not far away at a little bookstore almost across the street, right next to a strip club. I said, happy hour, free beer, come to James's poetry reading. And it was uh, filled with guys right out of work, as many, several of whom the next day sheepishly came into my office and said, well, that's the first time I've ever been to a bookstore, or that's the first time I've ever heard poetry. And um, so those two worlds did meet from time to time, and sometimes in, in, a, in a really fun way. I mean, the way you were describing it... I don't know, for some reason, the image of the the Michelangelo thing popped into my head, right? Like he says, the, you know, the David, he gets a block of marble. It's he's just taking away what's already there as opposed to making something. It that's what I'm hearing in a way, like that's how you feel about it anyway. That you it wasn't like that you evolved into this person. It's like you were kind you were this this part of you was always there. And and maybe there was a bit of a just the environment, the times, the societal expectations, all of that mix of things that is that, is that yes, I, right? Yeah, I think or, it's exact. I think it's exactly like that. It's exactly like that. Um, what what happened a little more specifically in, in terms of you know uh, making that that transition is um, although I had a, a very very uh, successful kind of outer world going, you know, I had a fifty nine foot yacht and a farm in Virginia and, and a house out in. Malibu, California, in the canyons, all of that stuff that's supposed to make you happy. And I was very happy guy, you know, why not? Who wouldn't be happy with that? I always felt like a little bit of an imposter, you know, I, I wrote uh, three books of poetry after work in my office. Um, you know, I would go out to dinner and then I'd come back and, and uh, you know, go back to the office and, and, and write. And I, I always felt well, that and that was my kind of real job. I was still in the big glass tower, but I was kind of doing uh, what I was kind of meant to do, you know, secretly at night. And um, uh, so I, I was doing that. And um, it was somewhere along the way, um, I went uh, traveling in India and um, I went with a, a friend who uh, had been there before. And she said, well, let's go to um, let's go to the, the place where the Buddha got enlightened. And I said, okay, you know, sounds interesting. Let's go there. So we went there and um, uh, there was a, 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 a flyer up on a tree announcing a, a, a five-day teaching by a Tibetan Lama. And she said, oh, I know that Lama. Let's, um, let's go listen to his teaching. And so I said, okay, well, sure. You know, you're cute. I'll do that. So we went and for five nights, we 
listen to this Lama teach. And I was, um, you know, kind of blown away by not anything mystical, not uh, some kind of incense-filled room, although it was an incense-filled room, but by the kind of practical um, advice that I was hearing about how to how to be happier, how to how to live a happy life, how to live a a calm and uh, truthful and happy life. And not only that, this little guy who I later worked for to give away the story um, was was one of the happiest people I'd ever met. And I yeah, I knew what happened to Tibet. I knew about you know uh, the you know the the Chinese uh, kind of genocide and takeover and, and everyone fleeing and all these, the Lamas, the Tibetans losing their country. And, um, and uh, I knew what had happened. And, and these people were still joyful, kind, calm. And I kind of wanted a little bit of that for myself. So um, I continued to go back to India and Nepal and Tibet um, Almost every year, for many years, started out as a two-week trip, and became four weeks, and became a month. Uh, and it, at one time, I, I went off to India for three months, while still having the corner office on corner 15th and K Street. We'll be back right after this. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now back to the show. 
at one point, my uh, my girlfriend, who was also a kind of corporate person, uh, she and I said, "Well, maybe there's um, maybe there's something more." And how much is enough? How much is enough? Um, how much do you have to have to consider yourself happy? And maybe we should just um, call it enough and leave. And it was really a kind of a decision that um, that, that came about, um, just came about one night. And suddenly we got very excited about the idea of just um, checking out, uh, saying, that's it. Um, enough is enough. Let's go somewhere else and do something else. And so... <laughs> Uh, it was, I think, several weeks later, we said, let's let's make this thing happen. So we we literally sat down um, on the 59-foot yacht uh, with a with a bottle of wine and a and a and a piece of um yellow uh, legal pad paper. And we said, okay, what are the names of all the cities in the world that we that might be interesting to live? And we um so down down the, the column we wrote uh, you know San Francisco, Barcelona, Paris, Kathmandu, um, Charlottesville, Virginia, which is very close by and kind of interesting. You know, all these places, and then across the top um, we wrote uh, the kind of qualities that we thought would, might be interesting in a in a in a good life, um, and um, you know access to friends. Good food, uh, ability to to study uh, Eastern religions—that was a little bit of a thing. For her, she was an artist. She said, "A good light," you know. So we said, "Okay, great. We've got you know 10, 10 or twelve cities and about fifteen different qualities. Let's just do the math." And then, best uh, best light. Well, clearly Barcelona. Number two might be you know let's say it's where else. Two bottles of wine later. <laughs> The thing was done, and and we looked at it, and of, and of course, the place that won was a place right down the road, Charlottesville, Virginia. We oh, said, really? no, 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 we are not doing that. We just scratched it off the list. Uh. <laughs> we said, we're not doing that. But actually, the next two places were uh, Barcelona and Kathmandu. And so we said, yeah, that's it. We're going to leave, and we're going to move to Barcelona. Or Kathmandu, and we're gonna, we're just gonna go. We had a little discussion. We said, well, we'll go to Kathmandu first, then we'll go to Barcelona. So I literally walked into my boss's office, and and I, you know, as I mentioned, I was, you know, I, I loved my job and and had a great relationship with the office, and and was was quite successful. And I was forty three years forty three years old, and I said. Um, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to retire. I'm going to leave when I'm 45. Um, because I had found something in, uh, the web on the website that said, if, if you have been working for the company for, um, at least 20 years, which I had, and you're 45 years old, you can retire with full benefits. And I said in 18 months, I, I am going to retire and he could not believe it and nobody could believe it, but we did it anyway. We just pulled the plug. Now, um, I had seen a couple of people do that in the past, and it didn't work out. Um, within six months, they were kind of freaking out. 
came back. One guy that I knew kind of tried, got his old job back, you know. So I, I had, I prepared myself for, um, I kind of began to phase out of uh, the corporate world uh, and sort of phase into the next, the next life. And the, the way that um, we uh, thought to do that was to go to school, to go from a corporate structure into another structure, which was the structure of a school. And we, and we found a, a school for, for, foreign kid, for foreign people that was held inside of a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Kathmandu uh, called Rangjun Yeshe Institute. It had about 120 students, a couple from Norway, by the way. Um, and uh, it was mostly Europeans and some Americans, but um, it was a three-year program where you sat on the floor, you were taught by um, Tibetan monks uh, in, the, in a traditional way learning Sanskrit, Tibetan language, Buddhist philosophy, um, all of that. And we said, let's do that. So uh, we, we, uh, when my uh, 40, 45th birthday came up, <laughs> not, not long after that, uh, there was a retirement party. Uh, and I walked out the door and uh, never went back. Never went back. <laughs> Story. That's amazing. That <laughs> now, so, that being said, I, 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 one thing I should add is um, I left on very good terms. And I, I do go back um, every summer to America. And um, I always go back to my old office, to UBS, and, and, and see people and go out to lunch and, you know, uh, go out to dinner with, with, with uh, people who are still in that industry. And um, I have to say, it, it is a, at the Wall Street crowd is an absolutely lovely group of people in many ways. Um, and they have made what I do now, which is uh, run a, a nonprofit for um, at-risk kids and bring poetry, bring writers to Nepal to do workshops. And, and I've, I have spent the last 15 years working in a Buddhist monastery, helping support the activities in monasteries. And that only could have happened and still does happen through the support of uh, people from from Wall Street. So those worlds do do uh, come together in many different ways, many surprising ways. Sure, yeah. And sometimes you don't know how that's going to be, of course, until much later, right? And you can connect the dots backwards or whatever. But what did the the experience on Wall Street and your career? What did you learn there? What are the things that you were able to take from there that that have really benefited you in, in the work you do now? My, my main job as a you know, as a retail investment broker was to meet with people, to uh, listen carefully to, to them and, and, and to understand carefully their, their, their financial situation, their life situation, and hear what they were trying to accomplish with, with in their own lives, whether that was to uh, start and grow a business or um, provide uh, education funding for their grandchildren or, or leave an estate behind or or grow their wealth so that they could uh, realize their own dreams. Each person was different and each person wanted something different uh, out of their lives. And the ability to listen, listen carefully and to understand what people are looking for uh, may, makes it um, much easier to help them, much easier to, to provide that help. And um, uh, as, as I was to learn later, uh, the, the more gentle side of helping others um, is uh, the most important thing that one can devote one's life to. And 
I had uh, devoted my life to a, a little more, you know, uh, hard edge side of helping others, um, you know, uh, in- increasing people's wealth and, and accumulating and, and that sort of thing in a, in a fairly competitive and doggy dog environment. But um, it's just another version of um, helping others and benefiting others. And um, so that, that aspect, the ability to listen and to really understand what people need in order to help them is, is one thing. And the other thing is that um, uh, <laughs> I learned a lot about raising money. And um, I, when I came and checked into the monastery, I had this kind of fantasy that all that was over. Um, and now I was just going to, you know, meditate in a cave or something like that, you know, get some romantic ideal of, yeah, what was going to happen. Totally. Totally. And and I kind of did that for, you know, for, for a year and a half. And, and then um, the abbot of the monastery, I think kind of heard there was this guy who used, who, who knew something about money, you know, I'm sure he didn't really know what um, investment brokerage was or or Wall Street was, but he knew there was somebody who had some facility with money. And so uh, a a, a little group of people approached me about uh, helping the monastery raise money. And I immediately said, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm here. I'm here to get enlightened and, you know, and and meditate. I don't want to be the money guy anymore. I don't want to be the money guy more. And I, but nobody says no to the, to the llamas, right? You don't really do that. So I said no, and I had I had a little bit of a little bit of an attitude when I well, okay, a lot of an attitude when I first came. So, and then six months later, they asked again, and I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not working again. I'm not helping any llamas. I'm not doing anything like that. <laughs> About six months later, I was up in the llamas' quarters. You know, it's kind of incense-filled room, and a, and, a, and a kind of enlightened guy at the front, and all these people around him, and I was sort of asked again, could you please help? And I, again, sort of politely declined. And as we were walking out, there was a, a, a guy caught up to me. And he was actually a, a Western, uh, a guy who teaches at Boston College, who's also a Tibetan Lama. And he, and he said to me, hey, you know, with his finger pointing at me, hey, uh, you don't get it. And I said, I don't get what? <laughs> and he said, you don't understand what's happening. Uh, if you have some kind of skill, you're supposed to use that skill to help other people. That's what you're supposed to do. And you're completely wasting your skill. Just like that. And I turned around and walked back in and I said, I'll do it. So for the next uh, 10 years, um, I worked for the monastery as the uh, director of development. And my job was to, um, I spent about uh, eight years, I think, traveling around the world with the, with the, Lama, who's a well-known teacher, has tens of thousands of students all around the world and meditation centers from Mexico to Russia to you know, everywhere. And I, I, you know, was part of the entourage of translators and monks, and I would just uh, travel with him, uh, you know, for months and months and months of every year. I had the great benefit of being able to sit in, you know, uh, Malaysia and receive kind of uh, wonderful Buddhist teachings and be in Moscow and receive wonderful Buddhist teachings and be in Mexico and receive, I, I received many, many uh, days and months and in fact years of um, profound 
teachings on how to be a better person, how to help more in the world from this Lama. And my job was to uh, very gently um, be available uh, when donors, sponsors, uh, wealthy people who uh, around the world wanted to help support the activities of the monastery, help support the activities of the Lama. So I was back to the money business. <laughs> back to it. It's, it's important because I mean, people listening right now or might be in a certain job that they, you know, maybe they want to leave because they're miserable and they want to go travel or whatever the case is, or maybe they love it, but they're just done with it. I, I always feel like every every experience has value, right? And you never know how that's going to play in to the things that you do in the future, right? Like at the time when you were doing all this, you had no idea that you were going to put a lot of those skills to use to to, to be in service of uh, this Lama and, and this organization and everything like that. So it's, uh, it's just wild how kind of how you can take things that you do in life and, and, and utilize them in, in other ways that you never would have could ever have imagined. Right. It's that's absolutely right. And, and everyone has those skills, you know, everyone has some, something that they can do well, you know, whether it's facility with numbers or good with people or, you know, or, or just a, a desire to, to do something. Everyone has that. And um, if I have done anything uh, in my, uh, you know, many <laughs> incarnations in this lifetime that I've had, uh, it is uh, kind of knowing that I had certain skills, you know, inherent skills and um, being willing to take risk and, and just make sudden changes uh, in order to uh, let those, let those skills um, you know, flourish again. And, um, you know, sometimes it looks like a piece of graph paper in the middle of the night. And sometimes it looks like turning around and walking back in the, to the room and saying, yes, I will take this job. Um, but, but uh, you know, the, the, there isn't, there hasn't been any much, any real uh, magic other than that. Um, the ability to kind of a little bit identify what I might've been good at. And also, um, just willing, the willing to take a risk and say, "Yeah, I'm going to try this now," and you know, it something always happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I something mean, well, happens. and then when you when you mentioned uh, when you're sharing your story, and, and I mean, you mentioned you know the success you've had. But, I mean, this is this is pretty wildly successful. I mean, when you can have a house in California, all these things, this is a, quite a high level of success in terms of of money. And and you know, like you said, I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't love a, a house on the beach in Malibu or whatever? I mean, all those things are great. So I'm just curious when you when you moved overseas and kind of started this sort of next chapter of your life, did that like change your relationship with sort of like possessions and 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 that sort of side of things? Yeah. Or and yes. how? That's a really that's a really great great question, and I'm really very happy you asked that because um, this story could just sound like uh, a guy got rich and then went and had fun. Right. Like that's that could sound like that. It's not really the story. Um, uh, yes, I I've saved enough money to to make some changes. Uh, my house was in the canyon in Malibu, not on the beach. Well, so I mean, I, yeah, you can, sorry. You, you can, you can, <laughs> no, I'm just saying you can subtract about four million dollars right there. Oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> and also uh, also uh, two, two things, two very significant things happen. Um, one is that the real estate market uh, in America completely collapsed, and that that lovely house that I had was worth uh, significantly less than it was when I left. Um, and uh, all of my 
you know, savings, which were in the stock market, plummeted. Uh, and that would have been 2006, 2008, and somewhere in that area. First, the market crashed, then, then the ho- housing crash. And um, I, I lost a, a significant portion of my assets. And when I say, say significant, you know, maybe more than half. Sure. And that's a lot. And my um, girlfriend said, should we go back? Is it, should we, like, this is, I was building a house, you know, I was continuing to finish the farm in Virginia and it wasn't done and the money was gone. And should we go back? And I, I said, I cannot go back. Um, and the reason I said that was partly because I had retired and made a big deal out of it. <laughs> partly because, yes, as I think you hinted, I had um, come to a part of the world and, and I, I had already spent many you can say years traveling here, but I moved to a part of the world where it's an extremely poor country. Nepal is an extremely poor country, usually in the top uh, 10 poorest countries in the world. And um, I had also kind of serendipitously found my way um, to a relationship with um, uh, an extremely impoverished community here, an encampment of street beggars, that I had started working with. And it came, it, the whole thing kind of came out of a, uh, a little bit cynical attitude that I brought from, from my Wall Street days, which was we were um, studying in this monastery and always hearing about benefiting others, doing everything for the benefit of all sentient beings. And I would always raise my hand and say, where? I don't see it. I see a bunch of monks meditating. Where are the soup kitchens? Where are the orphanages? Where are the old folks' home? I don't see any of it. And I would actually get a kind of what I thought was kind of bold answer every time I did that. Uh, I would raise my hand and say, you mentioned Mother Teresa. Where there should be a million Mother Teresas in Tibet. Where are they? I don't, I don't see them. You're talking about a Catholic lady who, you know, created a, 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 the most uh, beneficial um, hospice work out of nothing except a bucket of water. Where is it? And finally, I said something just about that rude to the Lama one morning, and he and he also finger at the chest. Look, um, all I'm saying is go outside, and the first person you see, just help them. That's all I'm saying is just go, and the first person you see, help them in whatever way you can. I said, oh, okay, great. I'll try that. Sounds right, you know. In my in my like great opinion it sounds right so i walked outside and one of these little street beggars came up to me a girl i'd seen a million times asked me for five rupees normally i would have said no you know but today is the day i say yes so i said yes here's five rupees she started talking she was very sweet she said do you want to come to my house for tea and of course i would have said no but today i said sure i'll come to your house for tea so this little kid led me down this through the village and down this path in like three, suddenly there was more and more garbage. And suddenly I was in a place where I didn't never seen before. And we came around a corner and there was this encampment of about, I later learned about 500 people, Indian refugees, low caste, untouchable caste who had come up from India 30 years ago. And they were living in uh, houses made of bamboo sticks and plastic and cardboard and everyone was drunk fires burning everywhere screaming shouting 
complete chaos. And she said, oh, would you like some tea? And then somebody ran and got me a cup and cleaned it with their shirt, you know, and like um, made a, a cup of tea. And I thought, what, you know, what, what am I doing here? I need to get out of here as quickly as possible, you know? And then, then I remembered what the Lama said, you just go outside and whoever you see, you help them in whatever way you can just do it. I thought, okay, deep breath, you know, and, you know, drank the tea and, um, and I started going back to that village every day. And, um, I didn't know what to do. I, I just, you know, I just showed up and then I, I started helping people with their houses. Like, Oh, do you need some help? Like putting that plastic up or people, and then people started coming to me with medicine because I couldn't read, you know, and, and they say, is this the right medicine? And, you know, they would, they would not have gone to a hospital for anything. So, and I would say, no, vitamin C is not really going to help, you know, your leg, <laughs> you know? And, um, so I, I, I brought down a big bottle of Advil and I became like a doctor. Anyway, the point is uh, I started going to that camp every, every single day for months at a time. And my girl, girlfriend said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, but I'm doing something. And what happened was I noticed a, um, uh, a, a lady making bed covers, uh, making a bed cover uh, for her, for somebody's wedding. And coming from Virginia, I, I thought, oh, that's, that, that looks like a quilt, you know, one of the things my grandmother's friends used to make. And so I said to her, can I buy that quilt from you? And of course, you know, bought it for a little bit of money, took it back to America, sold it to my mom, <laughs> you know, for 120 bucks. I said, you know, it's 120 bucks, mom. <laughs> and mom has to buy everything. So mom bought the quilt and I came back with the money, went down to the camp and I said to the lady, I bought that quilt from you. I sold it in America. Here's the money. It's $120. What should we do with it? And it's, that's a kind of very confusing question in that, that community. You know, first, of course, she said, first, give it to my husband. And I said, no, 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 we're going to do something with it. And no one could really figure it out. And, and so finally, that same girl who had tugged on my pant, you know, shirt and took me, take, had taken me down to the camp months before, she said, well, my little sister wants to go to school. I said, okay, great. So I took the little kid by the hand. We walked down to the school and I said to the principal, um, how much does it cost to put this kid in school? And he said, uh, $100. And I said, $100 a month? And he kind of looked at me like I was crazy. He said, no, there's $100 for the whole year. And I thought, what? How's, how's that even possible? So that's what we did. We took, we enrolled her for hundred bucks. The other 20 bucks, we bought her some shoes, you know, books, backpack and sent her to school. And then I thought, well, this, let's do that again. <laughs> so um, there were other women making these bed covers and I took them back to America, sold her to some friends, came back, put a few more kids in school. And that was about 16 years ago. And that little, uh, very, very simple project has is evolved into something that uh, a project that I call that is called Quilts for Kids Nepal. It's a registered charity. It's a nonprofit. And um, we give jobs to about 25 women making bed covers, which they have traditionally made forever. Uh, I market them around the world, websites, pop-up stores, house parties, grassroots stuff. 
And we've got um, uh, 65 kids in school. We've taken mostly girls. We've taken all the all the begging kids off the street in that community. They, there's nobody, none of the kids who can go to school uh, are begging. They're all in school. Um, we have um, uh, a, a girl in nursing college here in Kathmandu. We've got a, a kid in cooking school, uh, a, a, an 18-year-old who is in teacher training school and our Biggest success is our oldest kid, we actually were able to send to college in the U.S. Um, and she's now studying at a women's college in, in Virginia near my hometown. Um, so, so what evolved as a kind of cynical, you know, what are you talking about helping people, uh, it, which was the attitude that I brought from Wall Street um, to to just shut up and do it, <laughs> which is the attitude that I learned here. I was able to combine a little bit of business skills into something that is helping a whole different set of people now. And through the great kindness of um, our many, many friends around the world who support this very grassroots little project, including a bunch of Wall Street people who you know buy quilts from time to time, um, we have changed the nature of this little encampment and um, from a from a community where no one had ever put uh, one toe inside of a school, uh, all the kids are in school now. Some of them are, are getting careers, and the and the fabric of the community is is uh, changing. So. Wow, what what a beautiful story <laughs> on well, so many levels. I, yeah, well, we have to. We're going to include that link in the show notes. I should mention the uh, the link quilts for kids project. Dot com some beautiful work there. <laughs> I'm speechless. I, I, not good for a podcaster to be speechless. I'm sorry I talked so long. It was a long story. No, no, no I, walk, I, I love that. It's, it's. I, I hope there was something in there in, interesting about, um, you know, take again taking that, that was also a chance. You know, the, the Lama said, "Go and do something. Just shut up and do something." And. Uh, so I, I shut up and did something. Yeah, you you went and you, you know, like your girlfriend was asking you, uh, you know, what are you doing? And you're like, I don't know. And and that's kind of part of that process too. It's like you're just being present and trying to absolutely right. Be there absolutely right. and, and and see where it takes you. That's yes. not it's not an easy thing to do, especially I think coming from the Western mindset of like, you know, I think our mindset is a little bit more maybe regimented or, or more methodical in terms of like, hey, you know, all right, well, we're going we're gonna to do this project. Are we going to do this? We got to do these 10 things. And like, that's just kind of how we get things done. Right. And and that's absolutely right. Yeah. It, it, I think that my experience has been, you know, like like travel itself, when you journey into an unknown place and you just say, I'm here now. And um no, I haven't made all of my bookings on Agoda. And no, I haven't like got my day planned out. And you just walk out the door. It's, it's at those moments uh, of that when, where you walk into the unknown, but with an open mind and, 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 a, and a sort of heart that's open sometimes. Uh, that's when the most rewarding and most rich travel experiences occur. And I think it's also when the most rich experiences in life occur. And most opportunities occur. I think there's a real parallel between the way that one travels and the way that one travels through this sort of journey of life. What is it that attracted you to Buddhism? Are you a monk? Are you a Buddhist monk? Are you considered 
Or... No, no, I'm not. Not at all. <laughs> not okay. in any yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I can just I can say that um, becoming a monk or becoming a nun is just one of many methods that are available within um, the Buddhist tradition. Uh, methods towards um, enlightenment or awakening or being a better person, whatever you want to say. Um, one doesn't have to do that in order to attain some kind of liberation from the, you know, from the from the the shit that we're all caught up in in life. Um, it's one method. What attracted me to Buddhism was actually something that uh, was more of a kind of recognition of something that I had already felt um, growing up um, as a uh, as as a, as a Christian. You know, I, I went to an um, Episcopal boys school uh, where I were, you know, went to just every day started with going to chapel. I was a good kid. I went to church every Sunday. I was, you know, came up in a very Christian household. And I even at one at one time toyed with the idea of going to divinity school. So I had a kind of um, it was one of my lost college years. You know, I thought maybe I'll just go to Duke Divinity. <laughs> but um, so I had a little spirit, spiritual connection. But anyway. Um, Fast forward to, uh, you know, uh, being an adult, and you know, I had these sort of moments of, you know, sitting on the beach in in Malibu and kind of looking out uh, at the ocean and, and thinking, wow, uh, you know, everything is vast and open, and everything seems to be kind of connected. And wow, my mind is really calm here beside the ocean. You know, these kind of experiences. And um, it was on a trip to Japan once where I. Uh, was trying to learn about the, the country of Japan, Shintoism, Confucianism, and Buddhism. And so I, I, I thought, well, I'll check out this Buddhism thing. And I went to a kind of Zen monastery and tried to do a little meditation. And I thought, oh, that's that thing I felt sitting at the edge of the ocean. You know, that thing where, you know, you're calm and everything's kind of connected. And wow, you know, this is a thing. And so... It, it was more a kind of recognition of something that I had already felt and experienced. And um, I wanted to understand that more and more. And so um, I went back and joined a little meditation group and, you know, and kind of started exploring it that way. It wasn't until that trip to India that I mentioned where I fully got tracked into thinking, I really want to learn this philosophy as a way of life, as a way of changing, getting rid of some of my hangups, getting rid of some of my issues, and, it was, uh, and allowing a kind of better version of myself to emerge. But that happened a little later, but the sitting on the beach thing was pretty close to Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll be back right after this. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago, and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. 
thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people, on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Let's get back to the show. What yeah. would you say you know, at, th- at this moment in time right now, what are, what are maybe the biggest things that Buddhism has taught you either about yourself or just about your, your place in the world or, or all of us, you know, what, what are some of the, those kind of things that continually pop up in terms of your sort of day-to-day life and, and things that you kind of lean on as maybe philosophies or that, that you really kind of embraced? Right. I, I know what my answer is. I'm going to try to explain how, how, how I got to it or how one might get to it. Um, I just kind of came into a, a, a system with some vague idea that I wanted to change, create some ch- interchange for the better, you know, and um, it, that it, it my, what my day looks like is getting up early in the morning and sitting down and doing, uh, you know, 20 minutes of meditation and doing some of yogas and studying and that kind of thing. But it was, you know, a few years ago I was sitting during, during my 20 minutes in the morning. And I thought, wow, there's kind of a gap between my thoughts here. And I had been told there would be, there, that that would happen uh, someday. And the, between the time that I was told that would happen and the time I actually experienced it here, living in Kathmandu, having worked for the monastery for you know, 15 years, it was 18 years later. <laughs> it was 18 years later that I actually saw some result, right? So it take it is a thing that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of daily work. But what what I to answer your question, uh, compassion, the 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 wish to um, benefit others, the wish to be kind to others, um, that I kind of got intellectually, and that I kind of had a lot of resistance to. I thought, yeah, me helping a bunch of poor people is compassion. No, that's not actually compassion. That's that's you helping a bunch of poor people, which is a nice thing to do. But there's, there's a big difference between that and recognizing the universality of hu- the human condition, which is nothing ever really works out the way you want it to. You can call it suffering. Or you can call it like, you know, I... My martini wasn't made the way I really like it. Or you can call it, I don't have 10 cents to buy dinner. It's all the same thing, right? It's all in that realm of um, everyone is um, in the same boat. And everyone, but not everyone has the tools to, to um, change that. No one, not everyone has the tools to um, 
uh, change that within themselves, and therefore the ability to um, to help them, to help other people, to be a kind person, to be a good person, all that stuff that you read about. Um, that is, I would say, and I think my friends would say, um, uh, is, is possibly what I've gotten the most out of this and what I still try to cultivate on a daily basis. Um, our mutual friend, Eric Weiner, who was on your show not long ago, um, had uh, featured me in one of the chapters of one of his books. He'd come over here and that's how we met. And as he would say, seems like you're a lot less of an asshole than you used to be. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you can call that learning to be a compassionate person. Uh, that's what I call it now. And um, that's that cultivating that, um, that aspect of Buddhist philosophy, as well as, of course, uh, calming the mind, which is available everywhere on every street in every country in mindfulness and the ability to calm the mind, but really working with the idea of, of um, trying to help other people really from uh, because of the universality of suffering and, and the way that we're all kind of in the same, uh, the same boat. Um, and we, we, need, we really need to help each other. This is the great lesson that I've learned. And this is the one that I'm trying to sort of work on every day. Yeah. What kind of advice would you give somebody listening who's maybe they feel like they are searching for something or the next thing, kind of open to some new directions or possibilities in life, which I think, you know, is all of us to some extent in some way, shape or form for better or worse, right? Like, should we be always looking for the next thing that that's a whole other question to unpack, right? How do you navigate that in terms of your intuition or openness combined with the practicality of execution. I think your story, what you did for the community there really exemplifies what I'm kind of imagining in my head because it's like you you kind of had this open intention of just helping people yet over sort of time and openness and, and, and intuitive kind of, I don't know, I'm just going to keep going. It kind of morphed into this thing, although there you also took the practical steps. So it's it's always like a tricky balance, you know. Yeah, you, you, you're asking a lot of questions there, and, and I know I'm uh, too bad. That's that's the worst thing you can no, do no. as an interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. But I, I think one way of answering that is it's something that we touched on a little bit earlier, which is I think that that most of the great changes that that people make in life are usually the result of sort of stepping into the unknown. And I think travel is really, really one of the keys to doing that. Um, I did not come from a traveling family. My, my parents did not go on, you know, big vacations. We never went on vacation as a family, ever. Uh, I kind of, um, you know, did school year abroad in France. And that was really the first time I ever was on my own. And, man, I never looked back. I, I became an um, avid traveler. And even here, you know, Working, you know, as a you know a nonprofit um, organization guy and, and a guy that tries to help um, monasteries. You know, I'm ten countries a year pre-COVID. I mean, I'm I absolutely enjoy the the act of stepping off of a plane into the unknown. So um, to to put that on on a more practical level for people who don't travel so much, uh, put your phone down. Number one, 
get away from that thing that distracts your mind and becomes the method by which you constantly reinforce what you know. My music, my friends, my website, all of that stuff is, is, a, is a constant reinforcement of what is already the self and what is already known. So put down the phone, just put it upside down, you know, uh, and walk out the door. And if you want to walk really, really far, just keep walking really far. And one, when one steps out of that thing that is constantly re being reinforced, which is you're, you know, you should go to a good school and get a good job on Wall Street because that's what people do. Or you should go to a monastery and, and study and become a monk. Or you should run a, uh, you know, nonprofit organization in this particular way. Um, as soon as those things start being concretized, um, it's, uh, it's time to step again into the thing that you don't really know everything about. And through that, possibilities arise, um, the, the, the uh, new interests arise, and uh, the sort of magic of being in the world arises from that. Yeah, I mean, of course, Buddhism, philosophy, a lot of stuff around detachment, I'd say. And uh, what you're describing, I guess, mm -hmm. is the idea of detaching from everything you think you might know, in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would use the word non-attachment rather than detachment. And because de detachment kind of implies a stepping away from. And actually, non-attachment means being in the world, experiencing all of that, experiencing the suffering, the joy, the great concert, the terrible wine, all whatever you're experiencing, um, but just not getting too caught up in it. Um, and, and so uh, I'm... I used to, I used to, um, you know, try to sort of stay away from all the bad things, you know. Um, and I was, I was a little. You talked to some of my friends. Uh, I used to be. I refused to use email in my office. I told my clients, "I'm here on the phone from you know seven in the morning till midnight. Call me. It's a, I'm a human." And how stupid is that, you know? So like. You, you can't not use email, but that went on for years, right? I, my, my clients, former clients, still give me a hard time about that. But, um, but no, it's not. A, but that would be a kind of de detachment, right? The idea is, um, yeah, I've got a nice iPhone 12 right here. And, um, you know, but I keep it off most of the time. I keep it in another room a lot of the time. Um, you know, being in the world. Um, but just being a little bit non-attached to all of these things, um, what I have to do, what people expect me to do, um, you know, like all of, all of those things that we're quite attached to, um, my, finding my happiness, finding my bliss, <laughs> even that, right? Um, it's, it's, it's a matter of uh, experiencing it, but not grabbing onto it too tight. And, and from that lack of grabbing, something always comes up unexpected. Mm. Are there any particular fears you have right now that you'd like to overcome? Fear? I've talked too much in your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no such thing, I feel like my friend. I've been a lot. <laughs> no such thing. Well, um, fears that I'd like to overcome. That, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, 
I have spent a lot of uh, a lot of time trying to overcome fears, whether it's fear of um, someone not liking me, fear of not doing what I'm supposed uh, what I'm supposed to do. You know those kind of fears. I've jumped out of airplanes. I've done all that kind of fear stuff. Not that anymore. Okay, um, it, it's a little bit the fear. And this is a real answer for myself personally, the fear of not doing what I now want to do, which is to, to kind of get get rid of, you know, some of my my less desirable qualities. You know, uh, I still am on this kind of journey of, of wanting to become a better person, wanting to, to know how to um, help a little bit more. Uh, so it's a, it's a fear of, of kind of wasting my time watching too much. Nordic Noir on Netflix, <laughs> you know, Borderland, man, that show is ex- excellent. Wow. <laughs> no, but um, no, just, just a fear, just kind of wasting, wasting time um, uh, and, and not, not addressing the things that need to be addressed in, in a life. Um, becoming wiser, even at an older age, uh, becoming kinder at any age. That's really it. Yeah. You think about self-improvement, which I believe in. And and then I also think that sometimes there's this line where, you know, you have to have this self-acceptance, but then you also want to improve. So that that constant struggle to improve is is really one of those it's a little bit of a trap, you know. Um, like the the wanting to improve is kind of what took me out of my medium-sized town in Virginia to Wall Street and out of Wall Street to a monastery, out of a monastery to kind of helping in the world. Um, so of course, this is the thing by which we are we are successful humans. Yes, and it's 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 a good thing. Um, at the same time, it's a little easy uh, to to get. I find it a little bit easy to get caught up in like, okay, now it's time to meditate and and do yoga. You know, like you're 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 kind of um scheduling it in to the rest of your day and and that sort of defeats the idea of just letting go letting go and relaxing into the space of of being in the world and um you know uh the the, the um the secret message is it's by doing that that you actually do improve <laughs> so at a certain at a certain point uh Self-improvement is very helpful. At another point, the letting go of all the self-improvement, the letting go of that becomes even more helpful. Mm. Yeah. I want to talk about your writing workshop so we can let people know. This is like, I, I, I found out about these and I'm like, oh, I, I really want to get to these one of these one day. But you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you for a little advice around money. I mean, all travelers need money to travel, right? You have a wealth of experience pun intended, um, managing money, investing, all that good stuff. So, you know, if you can lay out, lay out some, you know, rules of thumb here for us, or just some, you know, drop okay. some knowledge here, James. I, I love that question. <laughs> I love that question. Um, here, I, I still travel quite a lot. I just got back from a month and a half in Thailand. Here's my advice for traveling. Spend most of your time in as cheap a place as possible and spend as little as possible. But um, along the way, absolutely um, splurge on on the experience of the place that you're in. 
For example, um, uh, I, I spent about a month in a, a $12 a night, one room, little bungalow that had you know, a lot of geckos on the wall and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I would go out and eat, I would eat street food. I never went into a restaurant. I would, I would pay $2.80, you know, a, a, an evening for, um, you know, some, some street, well, in Thailand, it's quite easy to get great street food, of course, right? The street food in Thailand is good as any restaurant. So, um, you know, uh, super low end where I lay my head at night, um, super low end eating, except, um, you know, I would, during the day, uh, I would hire a boat, just me and, um, you know, and maybe a guide. And, and I would, and I would say, let's, let's go to those islands out there. And I would spend the day going out and visiting these islands. And, and that boat might be a little bit more expensive, you know, um, to, especially to go by myself. Um, but not very expensive. Uh, and then I would go, then I went back to Bangkok, found my, my favorite um, $10 a night place where I've been staying for 20 years, where they know me when I come in. Um, great street food. And then, um, you know, I would treat myself to, uh, I, I always like to go down for sunset cocktails at the Oriental Hotel, which is the nicest hotel in Bangkok, uh, right on the edge of the Chalpier River. I always make it a point to go there and, and um, make sure I have some nice shoes, <laughs> you know, so it's, <laughs> yeah, nice shoes, <laughs> be in the city or the, or the place that you want to want to be in. Don't spend a lot of money on where you're staying or what you're eating. But when it comes time to seeing what that place is really offering, like beautiful islands or museums, or even a fancy hotel uh, lunch at the George Sank hotel in Paris, just do it. Let's do it. Don't spend your money on the wrong thing. <laughs> do you miss anything about living back in the States or are, are you most of the year in Kathmandu and then traveling and then a little bit in the States? How does your typical year look like? That, that's exactly right. I usually spend two or, two or three months of the year in America um, visiting family and friends and raising money for the Quilts for Kids project. And I usually spend the winter in Thailand um, usually just in a little shack on the beach somewhere doing, doing some kind of meditation retreat, but because it's very cold in Kathmandu in the winter. Um, but the spring and the fall, I usually spend traveling. Uh, I love to go and, and go to new countries when there's not a pandemic happening. Also, as part of that traveling, um, I started uh, this writing workshop project, which you mentioned, called uh, Him Himalayan Writers Workshop. And what, what I've found that I missed about America was the great literary community that you find in the big cities. You know, I lived in New York and in LA and in DC and always amazing literature. And as I'm, I'm living in Kathmandu, which is a city of 3 million people, and there is a pretty vibrant um, Nepali literary community, but sadly, and I'm very embarrassed to even say this, but I don't speak Nepali well, and I don't appreciate Nepali the, the plethora of Nepali literature the way that I should. So my solution to that was to bring a bunch of writers over here that speak English. <laughs> so, so, so about um, six or seven years, six years, seven years ago now, I started something called Himalayan Writers Workshop, which is where I invite um, well-known writers 
or well-known teachers of writing to come to Kathmandu Valley um, and to bring uh, people who might be interested in studying with them for 10 days, working one-on-one with them for 10 days to come along with them. So um, there's always a featured writer, kind of well-known writer. And then there's always people who are interested in writing who want to study with that featured writer. Sometimes I'm also one of the featured writers when we're talking about poetry. I, I usually am one of the featured writers. But what I've created is a kind of 10-day uh, uh, writing experience where people leave their home country, uh, come to a very exotic, very beautiful place called Kathmandu. Uh, they switch off their phones for the most part. And we start out uh, kind of in a little bit in a comfortable place for a few days, getting to know each other and, and getting to experience some of the uh, uh, you know, temples and, and sites nearby. But then we kind of do a deep dive into the unknown, where you walk out into the streets of a, of a city filled with cows and motorcycles and kids and holy men in the streets. And, um, and you uh, have the rug pulled out from under you. Um, you uh, aren't back at home in your, at your desk writing, looking out at your garden. You, you are experiencing with all the senses. Um, and we do meditations that um, encourage, um, encourage that type of awareness as well. Um, and then for the last few days, we go up into the mountains uh, where you can see the snow peaks and we sort of process everything. So I've, I've created these little journeys. And on the last night, we come back down to the Kathmandu Valley and we do a public reading. And I invite all my friends and all of us literature and performance hungry expats who live here are satisfied. <laughs> oh man, I can totally relate to this. Just this idea of, you know, wanting to have a certain thing when you're living abroad and just being like, all right, well, it's not here. So I'm going to create it. You know, I, exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to bring them to me. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, that's, that's awesome. Like, I can like, relate. like good, like good chocolate or yeah. decent cheese. Sometimes yeah. you just have to import it. <laughs> oh yeah, or in my case, Cheez Its and Petridge Farm Goldfish Crackers. You know, absolutely. Uh, Trader yeah. Joe's yeah. chocolate. There we go. Uh, a fr- free oh, plugs oh, for yes. all those companies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned poetry, and uh, well, by the way, we'll re- we'll leave the links to the Himalayan Writers Workshop as well. You can check the- those out. I really appreciate your time. I-, I I I know you you write poetry. You're into poetry. I was wondering if you could maybe. Um, maybe share a little bit or leave us with a little bit of, of poetry. Or, oh, wow. Or, I, I don't know if you sure. have some. Sure. Absolutely. That's, um, that's not a question that I expected. Um, but uh, um, would you like me to read sort of one of, one of my own poems? That or would be wonderful. Yeah. Poem? You have, uh, you have four books on poetry, right? Uh, yes. So, I have um, five, five books five on books. poetry and, and a new one coming out soon um, called Ex-Violinist in Kathmandu. It's a kind of collected, it's a, it's a book of 15 years of collected poetry in and about Kathmandu. Um, so that'll be coming out soon. But um, my, my favorite poem that I've written uh, is a poem that actually has to do some, something to do with travel. And um, it's about stepping into the unknown. And, and it's about... I think perhaps exactly what we've been talking about 
you know, today, taking taking risks and kind of where that leads you um, in in life. And um, uh, the poem has a kind of form. I'm showing it to you. Oh yeah, cool. To, to, okay. to the readers, is kind of a meandering path. Yeah. And the title of the poem is "Home Is Where," um, or it could be "Home Is Where." My first few footprints have now filled with rain and flowers blown in from the garden next door. My guidebook recommended breakfast bars, locks, and tiny tablets. In the end, I brought only air, just space for vision, and my special reverse camera that only takes photos of my eyes. No martini anecdotes of peril and wonder, no answers to all the cocktail questions. Did you have a, did you visit? Well, when I was, well, there used to be no tinctures or unguents for new breeds of bugs, no handmade journals in optimistic colors. I am carrying a peach and a transparent passport, and the woman in the photo is my twin. I have paced off the landscape one bead at a time. I have determined the curve of the sky. I approach the house backwards. The door is an ocean. I reach for the handle and step into light. Beautiful. Thank you so very much for sharing that and for sharing your time today. Yeah. Wonderful. And I really appreciate you just, yeah, spending the time to get on and I'm excited to hear that this was your first podcast. You you totally crushed it, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on. It's been so fun. And um, again, I I feel like I've I've talked way too much, but I I, um, appreciate the opportunity to just share what I know and and, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you, man. We get a little uh, (laughs) namaste here. And uh, I would love to do this in person again at some point. Maybe we can make that happen one day. So absolutely. Appreciate your time. All right. Let's keep in touch. Let's keep in touch. Here you have it. Thank you. James, for making Zero to Travel your very first podcast. I'm honored. And it was such a gift to be able to hop on and have this conversation and also a gift to share it with you, the listener here, my friend. It's always uh, uh, really is a gift week in and week out to be able to publish this episode and know that people out there listening to it. And uh, as I mentioned at the top, get in touch anytime. Uh, So much to unpack from this interview. And I loved that these these small moments, these serendipitous moments, if you want to call them that, or just these moments where uh, James chose to heed somebody's advice, right? And where it led him in his life. So cool. And uh, a lot around non-attachment, detachment, some of the stuff there, I find that non-attachment in many ways is, is built in to the travel lifestyle, right? You you kind of go from place to place. You don't have a lot of possessions if you're on the road for extended periods of time. And some of that practice is, is built in. You almost, it's almost forced, right? It's just one of the many aspects of travel that I think carries beyond just the trip itself. 
it's something that, at least for me, has carried with me throughout my life, even my settled life. So I'm wondering what you got from this interview, what this interview made you think about. Get in touch, Jason at zerototravel.com or just drop me a voicemail. That's the easiest, and I get to hear your voice. Let me know what you thought. What stood out to you, perhaps? What takeaways you had? Perhaps one moment in your life that changed forever from a small interaction or something you read. I would love to hear that. So maybe that would be the challenge I'll throw out there if you do want to get in touch. Just answer that question and share a moment in your life where everything changed for you. I'd love to hear that. Now, that moment for me, as I promised at the top, I I would share. There was a, a time where somebody said, shut up and do something. And that somebody is my friend Emily over at puttylike.com. <laughs> she runs a big uh, website for multi-potentialites over there. We've had her on the show. You've probably heard her her name before if you've been listening for a while. And I remember at one point I was talking about this podcast endlessly, wanting to start a podcast, wanting to help people travel, wanting to interview people and have conversations. On and on and on for months I talked about it. And then she literally said, Jason, shut up and do it. Either shut up or do it. <laughs> basically. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, this is like, Emily's like a gentle soul. You know, she's not usually the the tough love gal, but she's, you know what, shut up and do it. I'm like, all right, I took that to heart. I'm going to shut up and I'm going to do it. Or no, I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to talk because it's a podcast, but I'm going to do it. And I did it and it changed my life forever. So uh, thanks. I want to shout out to Emily for telling me to shut up and do something. So, you know, sometimes it's hard as a friend to um, be the friend that says shut up to somebody else and do something. But that tough love can help at the right moment in time, right? Lastly, I'm going to leave you with a quote before I let you go. Might as well be from the Dalai Lama. Why not? One other thing, you know, the the idea of uh, just using your skills to help others from the top of the show. That, that was something that really resonated with me. And the fact that you could just do that in small ways, right? I think sometimes it's easy to over-dramatize the impact we want to have. But we can use our skills in small, simple ways to help others. And that, that was a big takeaway for me. So again, feel free to share yours. Get in touch anytime. All right, this quote from the Dalai Lama, pretty famous one. Every day, think as you wake up. Today, I am fortunate to be alive have a precious human life. I am not going to waste it. (laughs) Get out there. Enjoy the day. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 